While, our, uh, while the kids are heading over, I just want to remind you guys, while we don't take up a normal offering at True Vine, meaning we don't pass plates, we still rely on uh, generous, faithful giver, giving. And so in the back, on my left, your right, we do have an offering box. If you, ever, uh, if you ever want to give, that's the way to give. Just give through that offering box. We handle it pretty darn well, in my opinion. So we have some great people that oversee our finances and uh, do everything pretty in a pretty trustworthy manner. So um, i got to say, my wife can tell you, I'm excited for this sermon um, I've been enjoying the, the preparation process, and I know it's going to be good, and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, because Dan is on this side of the pillar this week, and I kind of look to Dan the way people look to the groundhog, the Punxsutawney Phil. If Dan's on this side of the pillar, I know revival's on the cusp. Uh, and So when he's on the other side of the pillar, I get very nervous about something. I look for people to blame and uh, things. So... But guys, buckle up, that's all I can say. Um, all right. Let me pray for us real quick one more time. Actually, would one of you mind standing up and praying for the sermon? Just uh, stand up on your feet, pray nice and loud so we can all hear you. I really enjoy it when someone else does that. Anyone got the guts? Okay, Elder Shea has to do it, all right. Amen. Thank you, Shay. Now, I want to tell you a little bit of my background. I bet some of you can relate to this. Um, I did not grow up in the church, so to speak. I, I became a Christian when I was 14. So from 14 on, uh, I've had church experience. So I came in just in time to get a little bit of youth group experience. Uh, I came into church just long enough to get screwed up enough to go uh, away to Bible college and, and then just live a roller coaster life for a while. Uh, I got saved when I was 14, and I started attending church camp. Has anyone here ever been to church camp? Okay, a couple of you. Not not that many. Okay, I thought there might be more. Okay, church camp. How about, have any of you ever been to like a conference, like a church Christian conference or convention or something? Okay, a little more, more. More that have done conferences than camp. All right. So here's how camp always went. Our camp started on Sunday night, we would go to church on Sunday morning, everyone was hyped for, for camp, and then we would get dropped off at camp Sunday night, and then we would be there until the next Saturday afternoon, so we had a whole week of camp. Um, and Sunday night was meeting your roommates, a lot of times I roomed with kids from my youth group, Sunday night was meeting your roommate, the Sunday night service was generally kind of like shallow, because everyone was, no one really wanted to be there for that reason, right? I mean, we were all there to hook up. And so Sunday night was a little shallow, and then Monday night got a little deeper, so that by the end of the week, we were, we were all fired up for Jesus. We were getting some pretty heavy stuff for teenagers, at least. And every year on Friday night was the heaviest hardest sermon about your commitment to Jesus and how much you loved him and how you were going to go back and change your school and your family for Jesus. And I always went back hyped up and I, I ended up one year in particular starting a Bible study at my public school because of that. And, you know, I would always come home from camp and the week after, man, I was almost flawless. I would read the Bible every day. I would share the gospel with my family and friends. I would apologize to my brother for all the things I'd done to him. Uh, I would be nice. I would listen to my parents. I just, uh, you know, I there was a there was a week after camp where man, I just was really obedient. I guess. Now that obedience always waned, it always cooled off over time, uh, to the point where I started to expect that to happen after camp or conference. 
I knew that there would be this mountaintop spiritual experience that would carry me along for a while, but I also knew that that was not that the hype or zeal that I picked up from that experience was not going to be enough to carry me through forever. So sometimes that led me to get a little bit depressed, and I would say, well, this isn't even real. Other times it wouldn't lead me to get depressed. It would lead me to then have to say, okay, how do I make sure I sustain this? How do I make sure I live this way for more than a week? And I would institute, you know, maybe some spiritual disciplines. But I, you just, honestly, you have to take a deeper look. Now, the reason that that happened to me, the reason that I would ramp up during a, a Christian event and then kind of ramp down after that was because very rarely did I, and very rarely do you, ever give Jesus full access to every area of your life. So what would happen at camp is, you know, they'd preach a great, less, a great, a great sermon on like purity, like sexual purity, and so... Man, I was, I was totally focused on that. I was going to be pure, going to not, not look at anything or touch anything I shouldn't look at or touch. But I would compromise in other areas of my life, with my grades, with my finances, and other things. And then there'd be a great sermon on tithing. Got to support the work of the Lord. Give the Lord your first fruits. And I would say, yes, I'm going to do that. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to give. And I would be hot for a while. But then I wouldn't really let the Lord touch other areas of my life, like the way I treated my family or areas of purity. And there was just, it was always like, here's one section that we're going to deal with today. Tomorrow we'll deal with another section. And I very rarely did I just give Jesus the full access that he wanted to do change. Because if you compromise in one little area, you begin to let things in, and then all of a sudden that fire that you have burns out. Do you understand? Okay. Now, before I get into the actual passage, I want to share with you guys something that I've been learning about holiness and consecrations. Let me explain those two things first. Really, they're very similar, pretty much two words for the same thing. Uh, Holy means to be set apart. Okay, not only set apart from the world, but also set apart to God. Consecration is essentially the lifestyle that you live in when you desire to live a holy life. So when I say consecration, I'm I'm just talking about living holy. And I really am convinced that consecration and holiness are kind of missing from the general church dialogue in the United States and that God is calling the church to be consecrated, to be holy, to live in holiness. Now, I know that sometimes when, the, when pastors talk about holiness and consecration, it turns it very easily drifts into legalism and a bunch of rules. So, like, I have this pamphlet in my office at home. Uh, I have one copy. It's from the 70s or 80s. It's called Holiness and the Gray Areas. And the whole purpose of the pamphlet is to help people decide between actual biblical holiness and legalism. We don't want anybody to go out, fall into legalism, which is where you just have a unnecessary rules and regulations. Um, it's, it's a rule, legalism is essentially extra rules to keep you from breaking the main rules. You know, so like if uh, if the Bible says to honor the Sabbath, that's, that's a regulation, that's a commandment from God. So we're going to surround it with a bunch of other rules to make sure we don't get close to breaking the, God's rule. So God says, honor the Sabbath. So you know the Jews of Jesus' day would say, all right, don't even do this on a Sabbath, and don't even do that on a Sabbath. They would protect the rule with more rules. That second level of rules is called legalism. All right, so holiness is about living uniquely. And the opposite of holy is not wicked. The opposite of holy is common or plain or regular or natural. The opposite of holy is not wicked. The opposite of holy is common. So when we live just like everybody else, that's common and it's not holy. It's, It's not really about how much of the Bible you read. It's 
It's are you living like everybody else or are you living in a way that's completely unique and distinct? In Nehemiah 10, Israel uh, is, is creating this document. I talked about this last week. Their, their response to Nehemiah 9, which is the recollection of Israel's history with God, their response is to draw up this document. It's essentially like a covenant that they make with God, and they have three different groups of people sign the document. Does anyone remember what the three groups that signed the document were? They were the priests, leaders, and Levites. Wow! Oh, man, I feel like I actually have a job now. Woo! Someone listened. All right, great. Well, I did post the answer to that question on Facebook yesterday, I think. All right. Well, thank you for making me feel good. Uh, so the priests, the Levites, and the leaders of the people sign that document. All right. Today, we're going to actually read what the document said or the obligations of the document. Okay, so now we're seeing what did they really sign up for. Last week, we talked about who signed up. Today is what did they sign up for. So this is Nehemiah 10, verses 28 through 39. It's not very long. Um, I'm going to just ask you to focus because it's going to be talking about some stuff we don't do nowadays, like crops and how much of your bread dough to give to the priest and stuff like that. Just okay, If you need to stretch... Take a deep breath so that you can focus. Please do that. I see some of you taking me up on this. All right, good. All right, so if you can throw it up on the screen for me, Nate. Thank you. Great job. All right, I'm just going to read this uh, for us. Would you guys mind standing while I read this? That will keep you... No one falls asleep standing, right? I know it's hot in here. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. So see how they're separated from the other people and to the law of God. There's a double separation going on there. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Next slide. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of our God according to our fathers' households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it was written in the law, and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually. And bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of God. One more slide before I get to that. Notice that they had the, the Levites who had to keep that fire burning, so the rest of the people's job was to bring wood for them to keep that fire burning. Go back one. Oh, we did that one. Okay, go forward one. Thank you. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions. Dough is a, is a Hebrew word for money. Just kidding. Okay. The first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground of the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. All right. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Okay. So this is what's happening with Israel. 
They have rebuilt Jerusalem. You guys remember that from Nehemiah, right? They've rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. They did it in about 52 days, which is pretty impressive. They rebuilt Jerusalem. Once the wall was rebuilt, they began to develop the culture of the city, which is something that leaders do. They create culture. They do not create rules. They create culture. Rules are something that people create so that they can go to bed on time. But the leaders of Israel are creating culture. They reinstituted uh, the public reading of Scripture. They had a day where they read Scripture and repented 12 hours a day. They had actually a whole season of time where they did that. They reinstituted the Feast of Tabernacles, which we're going to kind of do ourselves at the end of September, about a month from now. They've reinstituted all these things. They have released people from debt. It's really been a good uh, experience for them. They're, they're kind of having this spiritual renewal, and they decide that they're going to mark it with a document. So they're, imagine right now they're kind of corporately on a spiritual high. It'd be kind of like if a church was going through some level of revival, and they want to mark it with this document, with this covenant, with each other, and with God. And the covenant that they write, all right, you can be honest here. Did anyone find that a little hard to uh, stay interested in as I read it? Anyone find it maybe just a tad meticulous and boring? All right, thank you, the four of you that were honest. All right, it was, because so much of it is unrelatable, talk about bringing the first fruits of your cattle, your dough to the priests and the Levites, bringing a stack of wood. We don't do most of that nowadays. Uh, some of it we don't have to do. Um, but if you read this, uh, this, this document, it is meticulous and it is all-encompassing, all right? The, uh, the Israel is consecrating itself. They are, they are saying, we are not going to live like all the nations that surround us. We're going to live for God, and their consecration impacts or touches three very specific areas of their lives. This is a full, whole consecration. And it touches three areas of their lives. The first area that it touches is their families. If Nate, you can take me back to the first slide. Uh, yeah, thank you. In verse 30, they begin to say that we will not take, uh, sorry, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land. So they're saying that they're not going to give their daughters to be married to the other nations that are not worshiping God. Uh, that is not a command against interracial marriage, that is a command against interfaith marriage, it says we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Go to the next slide. In uh, verse 36, okay, go one more slide. And then it says, and they will bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons. So, They've made commitments here that relate to their sons and their daughters already. You know, we're already talking about every kind of kid you can have. Their sons, their, especially their firstborn sons, are going to be dedicated unto the Lord. Their daughters are going to pre be preserved to be married to those who share the same beliefs as them. They're not going to intermarry with other belief systems. They're making commitments. They're allowing their commitment to God and their consecration to God to impact their entire family, uh, according to verses 30 and 36. The second area that they allow this co commitment to consecration to touch is their schedules. Can you go back to the first slide for me? We're going to jump around a little bit here. Sorry, go one forward. I need verse 31. Okay, this is going to show you where this impacts their schedules. Uh, as for the people of the land, who, so the people of the land, so Gentiles who bring wares of stuff, or any grain on the Sabbath today, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. So they're saying that on their Sabbath, which is Friday night to Saturday sundown, they're not going to buy from Gentiles. That impacts their schedule. You're like, if I, if I really know that I need to eat Chick-fil-A, I have to plan my calendar so that on Saturday I can eat it twice because I know I can't eat it on Sunday. Some of you got that. So that impacts their schedule. So they're, just, they're determining what I cannot do on the Sabbath. 
And because I can't do it on the Sabbath, that also means I need to make plans the rest of the week to, to have what I need. Right? I mean, I remember even as a kid, there were a lot of grocery stores, because I lived in a rural area, that still were not open on Sunday. So if you needed something for Monday, you had to know that on Saturday. And if you didn't get it, well, then you didn't have it. Right? You had, this, so this, this commitment to consecration is impacting their schedule. Now, here's the problem. The stuff was still for sale. So it'd be, it'd be more like the store is open on Sunday. You've just said you're not going to the store on Sunday. Isn't that even harder of a commitment to keep? There it is, right in front of you. You could go, but because of a commitment you made to God, you don't. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't go to the store on Sunday. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is your commitment to God will impact your schedule. It'll impact your routine and your rhythms. In fact, in verses 33 and 34, uh, starting here, uh, for the continual... So the Sabbaths, the new moon, the appointed times, the holy things, the sin offerings. Uh, now, we're not just talking about the regular Sabbath once a week. Now we're talking about holidays. That their consecration to God, their commitment to God, is impacting their holidays. That's also a schedule issue or a schedule item. So they've made a commitment to God that, that impacts their families. They've made a commitment to God that impacts their schedules. And then the third area that it touches are their resources. So in verse 32, we placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel. How, who knows how much one-third of a shekel is? I didn't. Okay, I was hoping one of you could tell me. Go ahead. So the Jewish Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday night and goes till sundown on Saturday night. So most of it would fall on Saturday. Okay? Sorry, I can't hear you. Yes, oh yes, you can go to the store on Sunday. As far as I'm concerned, you can go to the store on Saturday. I'm, please, I'm not telling you you can't go to the store on Sunday. I'm just saying your commitment to God should impact your schedule. And how that unfolds is up to you. You will see me at the store on Saturday and Sunday and every other day if I need to be there. All right, thank you for asking that. I want to clarify it. Make sure no one goes home saying, Pastor Jim's leading a cult. All right. He's telling us not to go to the store on Sundays, and then he started talking about money. We all need to get our hair cut short. Okay, so he placed them on, they, they placed themselves, sorry, they voluntarily put themselves under an obligation to contribute one-third of a shekel to this, uh, for the service of the house of our God. Now, I don't know exactly what one-third of a shekel is. I could probably find it out here. But here's what I want you to see. The law of Moses said that they needed to give a half a shekel. Their commitment was to give a third of a shekel. What's bigger, a half or a third? A half, right? Half is what percent? Okay, good. All right, sharp today. See, Dan? Uh, that's right. How much is a third? What percentage is that? Great. So they're actually making a commitment that is lower than the law of Moses. Here's why I think they're doing that. Because they weren't giving anything before. I think they're easing their way up on the way to full obedience. We do this sometimes, and, and this, is, this passage right here is one of the reasons I think we have permission to do this. We often try to encourage people to tithe, which is to give 10%. Some people say, oh, there's no way I could do that. I can't just give up 10% of my income. So this is what we suggest. Well, start with 2%. Once you're used to that, go to 4 and work your way up to, the, to that level. I think that's what they're doing here, is they're saying, well, we're going to start with a third, and then we don't really know where they went from there, but the law of Moses said half, and I think that they were committed to being obedient to that. So they worked their way up. Um, so, anyway. But this... So now they have this commitment to God that impacts the resources, their money, their wood. I guess I don't know what the new, new like equivalent to that would be, a tank of propane or something. Uh, 
But they were, they were giving money. They were bringing resources like wood. Even in verse 35, uh, it says that they tithed on their land. It says that they gave the first fruits of their ground, of their land. Uh, it says that they gave some of their trees, which probably were cut and then used for wood. It says the first fruits of their herds and their flocks. And they even gave their food. So I want to look, let me just summarize this here for you. This consecration, this commitment that they're making to God touches their families, their schedules, and their resources. I don't know that there's much left after that. I mean, if your commitment to live for God impacts your family, your schedule, and your resources, that covers almost everything, if not everything, doesn't it? And that's the actual, that's the idea of consecration. A partial consecration is not consecration. It's a headache. It's a nightmare. It's a guilt trip. Now, consecration is the act of applying the kingdom of God to every aspect of your life. When I talk about living in holiness, living in consecration, I am not talking about trying harder to be better. All right, let me repeat this. When I talk about holiness, or when we talk about holiness, we are not talking about trying harder to be better. We are talking about saying nothing is off limits to God. That's what consecration and holiness actually are. You're saying everything is on, on the table for God. Nothing is off limits. He can touch and do whatever he wants to do in my life. That's really the issue that we're after. Not how much better you can behave or how much more Bible you can read or money you can give. That's not what we're about. This is about saying what parts of your life has God not get, been given access to yet? Do you understand that? Do you understand the difference here? So this isn't like you straining and pushing to be a better person. This is about you surrendering everything, even those hidden things that are not surrendered yet. One of the things I get to do as a pastor every now and then randomly is people sometimes ask me to dedicate their houses, to go pray in their homes and dedicate their houses. In particular, people ask me to do that uh, when they've experienced something traumatic, uh, sometimes people ask me to do that when they're having kids, like we, we're having a kid and we want to have our house dedicated or prayed through. And every time I do that, I have to ask, I do at least, I don't know if I have to, but I make sure, I ask permission to go in every room. And I, I don't assume that they want me in every room. Sometimes I have to ask permission, can I go in your bedroom? Or is there stuff there you don't want me to see? And no one has ever said no. Sometimes I wish they had. Sometimes I do see stuff that I'm like, oh, I one time saw someone's underwear. Um, when, we, when I pray through a person's house, I tell them this is not going to really stick unless we have access to every single room. If there's a room that's off limits, I don't know how far we're really going to get. So we go room by room by room by room. It's kind of like if you're cleaning a house because it has a, a stink in it, like a stench or an odor, and you decide to clean some rooms but not every room. Isn't that stench going to come back eventually? So when we're giving God our lives, when we're, when we're deciding we're going to live in consecration and live in holiness, this is about giving God access to every room in our lives. The family room, the money room, the resources room, the sexuality room, every room he's given access to. You understand? If there is a room that's off limits, that room becomes the most important room all of a sudden. So consecration is not about you trying harder to be better. It is about giving God full access to your life and saying that nothing is off limits to God in your life. Consecration and holiness are not the same thing as perfection. 
So I want to tell you right now that none of us here are ever going to attain sinless perfection till we die. All right, maybe after death, uh, we'll see how things work out. None of you are ever going to obtain or attain sinless perfection. There is, there are actually churches that believe that. We're not one of them. Can you imagine? Go, if I went to one of those churches that believed that, I would totally be like, "Yep, got there in record time. Don't question me." Uh, it's called total sanctification, and it's the idea that you can be. You can eradicate all sin from your life and be perfect. We don't believe that. But some churches do. And it would be really hard to disagree with anyone in that church, right? If they've reached sinless perfection. Uh, Kendra's parents went to one of those churches. Believe me. Uh, But they don't anymore. Thank you, Jesus. Perfection is not the same thing as holiness. Okay? And because of that, nobody's perfect is not an excuse to not live in holiness. I think sometimes we use nobody's perfect as an excuse to permit sin in our lives. But nobody's perfect, is that's a totally different topic and a totally different idea than the idea of living in holiness and obedience to God. And... Here's why I know that, that, that nobody's perfect doesn't cut, doesn't cut the mustard. That's a Western Pennsylvania euphemism or phrase there. When you stand before Jesus and you're looking at his eyes that are burning and the sword that's coming out of his mouth and he's like glowing with heat, he's got hair like wool and his voice sounds like the roar of many waters, The phrase, nobody's perfect, will not be able to come out of your mouth because you'll be standing in front of the one who was perfect. Nobody's perfect will not cut it when you stand in front of Jesus because he was and is perfect. So then what? So if it won't work then, it shouldn't work now. So we are not asking people for perfection, so stop using nobody's perfect as an excuse. You understand what I'm saying? Really? Okay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. We're not talking about perfection. It'd be like if my wife said, how come you never take the trash out? And my response was, nobody's perfect. If she, She's not going to let that slide. She's like, well, I'm not asking you to be perfect. Just asking you to take the trash out. We will never ask you to be perfect. But since Jesus already tells you to be obedient, that's a fair expectation, isn't it? And then there's going to be times when we're going to need to give each other mercy and grace. Because we are all still, to the day we die, going to continue in some level of sin and disobedience. That sin is going to be caused mostly by pain, And also by lies that we believe. You know, your pain causes you to sin more than the devil does. And the devil, if he gets you to sin, is probably going to manipulate your pain. Or he's going to use lies that you believe. But your pain causes you to sin more than than the devil does. Don't blame him. And I think really, ultimately, the thing that holds these rooms or these areas of our lives back that we don't give to God, this is what holds us back. We don't believe that God is really that good. We think that we would do a better job managing these issues ourselves than if we let him in to bring healing, uh, power, obedience, whatever. I really honestly think most of us could trust that God is better than we think he is. The truth is, God is better than we think he is, so therefore we have to adjust our thinking. No matter how good you think God is, there's room in your mind to improve and to think he's better. I've told this story before, but a little over two years ago, I think it would actually be like, it'll be two years in October, I think. We had this one Sunday morning service at Truvine. This is back when we just had one campus and everybody was at Wissanoming. 
we had this really great service. It was a baptism service. It was in October, I remember that. And we baptized like six or seven people. I think, Shay, you might have been one of the people that were baptized that day. No? Oh, Anna was. I mix Anna and Shay up all the time. Two peas in a pod. Okay, it was about two years ago. We, we baptized six or seven or eight people. And uh, first, the, the building was packed. I mean, it was full. It was 150 people in that small little building. We baptized some people. Then I brought Luis and Chris up at the end of the service, and I said, you guys close up the service, and Luis did his thing, and Chris did his thing, and I'm just sitting there so proud of our church. And then we had uh, Rachel Clark, I think it was Rachel Clark, sang for us, and it was awesome, and the whole congregation was worshiping. And I just, I loved it, because here was something that at that point five years ago didn't exist. Now it's full, we're baptizing people. Scott Newcomer, who's one of our elders, who came to True Vine, still growing in his faith, and he still is growing, but then he's an elder, and now we have him baptizing people. Chris is doing a great job, Luis is doing a great job, the worship leader's doing a great job. I'm loving it, people are singing. It was awesome. The service ended, and I thought, something bad's going to happen. Surely we can't have, a, I'm, like, I'm thinking like someone's going to die or quit or rob me or something's going to happen because I was like, there's no way that things could go this well. And at that point, we knew that we were going to start the second campus. And I just truly doubted that things could be that good. Sometimes we say we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You ever heard that phrase? Waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're, you're almost afraid to get your hopes up, right? Because you're expecting that at some point, some recompense is going to come around and humble you and bring you down. You're like, oh yeah, I should have known that. Things couldn't be really that good. And I left church that day. I, I was really just incredibly happy, but by the time I left church, I was just expecting something bad was going to happen in the next week or so. Someone was going to die or the building would catch on fire. I don't know. And God convicted me right there in my living room. This is when we still lived on Devereaux Street. And he was like, do you really not think I'm that good? You really think that I wouldn't let you enjoy this? You really think that I have to like smash you, bring your dreams down, crush everything? And I was like, sorry, Lord. Because I didn't really believe he was very good. I kind of thought he was one of those fathers that got your hopes up just to crush him. And you know, he, ch- he convicted me, he challenged me. He's like, you know, I am that good. And things can be even better than what you experienced today. And so I waited and a week passed, nobody died. Nobody robbed me. Church didn't burn down. Two weeks, three weeks. You know, things just went okay. And there was no other shoe that had to drop. And that really, to me, was a lesson and an illustration that God is good and that He's worthy of all of our trust. So when there's an area in your life, and again, in this passage it was their families, their schedules, their resources, When there's an area of your life that you could do better, that you think, I can do better managing this than God, you really are doubting the goodness of God and how well he can run your life for you. You know, the Christian life is not about just living your life based on biblical principles. It's really letting Jesus Christ live his life through you. It's a whole other level of, uh, of life. And as long as we doubt the goodness of God, we would never sign a document like they signed in Nehemiah. As long as we do not trust how good he is, how much he loves us, that he has our best in mind, you'll never sign over everything. You'll always keep something back that you think you, can, you could restart or rebuild with. We need to have a high level of trust that God is good, that he's worthy of our trust, 
in every area of our lives, and that is consecration that, that's worthy of this passage in Nehemiah. So I'm going to ask Gary and the worship team to come up, because there's a, we're going to close with this song. This song, we sang this last night in the prayer room. This song nails this. Uh, what's it called again, Gary? I Am Yours. You're, you're going to be familiar with this song. We've sung it on Sundays before. But this song nails it. I want to ask you to sing this from your heart this afternoon. Uh, to make this, you know, we're not going to draw up a document and have you sign it. Instead, we're going to sing a song. This is our version of that document. To declare our trust for God, to declare who He is and that we trust Him, that we trust that He's good, and that He's worthy to have influence or to touch every area of our lives, and that that for us is our definition of consecration. So would you guys stand with us? I'm going to let Gary and the team take it from here. We'll wrap up after that.
going to let our daughters marry outside of our our nation they were trusting that God was going to provide husbands for them when they dedicated their firstborn sons to the Lord they were trusting that he knew how to take take care of their kids better than they knew how to take care of their own kids when they said that we won't buy uh, from Gentiles on the Sabbath when they said that we would 
celebrate these festivals and dedicate time to them. They were saying, we trust you, Lord, to provide for us. We trust that you know our rhythm, what it should be, better than we know. And that you'll care for us on those Sabbaths. When they dedicated money, land, and other resources, food, to the service in the temple, they were saying, we trust you, Lord, that you're going you're gonna to make up for the, the deficit that we're going to create by giving. We trust you, Lord, to provide for us. Every single one of those was an act of trust. Consecration demands trust. That he's good enough for you to give him access. So the last thing I want to do, rather than us signing a document, is I would like for us congregationally to declare our trust in God. And it's going to be really simple. If you're one of those out loud people, this will be simple. If you're one of those quiet people, then you can just, no one will even notice that you didn't do it. But I, I'm going to ask that as a congregation that we would all just cry. Just at the same time, state out loud, we trust you, Lord. Nice and simple. Not complicated, right? We trust you, Lord. Now, if you don't trust him, then it might be better that you don't say it. But if you do trust him, this is an opportunity. So I'm going to count to three. So one, two, three, we trust you, Lord. We'll just say it together and then I'll close in prayer. One, two, three. We trust you, Lord. So, Lord, we declare our trust in you. We sing it. We state it, Lord. And I pray, Jesus, as we go with our actions, also declare our trust in you. And we pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Don't forget to pick up your kids.